0: So, uh, the difference between a confession and an apology uh, in, in Greek is very significant. Um, an apology, apologos, is uh, with words. It means kind of to make excuse. An apology goes, eh, mistakes were made. You know, there were extenuating circumstances. Confession is different. It means to agree to say the same thing as, and Lauren and I have uh, tried to practice over time learning the art of confession, saying what God is saying to us, and after church last Sunday, a friend talked to me about the fact that sometimes when I go off script, my sense of humor can have a bite to it that I don't mean for it to have, and when I was giving the announcements before church, that happened, and um, I need to confess that to you. Uh, And Lauren, you and I can talk about that later, (laughs) so don't be too concerned, but uh, anyway, uh, that is my confession. A few years ago, I asked a mentor, a thoughtful and energetic 84-year-old, a big question. We were having lunch together, and I said, well, you know, you've had a little time to figure this out, at 84, what do you truly want? He shared that he had spent nearly a decade thinking about that very question, pondering what he'd say to his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren if he had only one remaining breath. And I'll never forget his answer. 10 years of contemplation and meditation that came down to eight words one for every decade of his life. Eight words that wonderfully illuminate this week's gospel from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 22, and eight words that I'm not going to give you just yet. By the way, I asked him two years later, he was now 86, at what point do feelings of lust abate? I'll never forget that answer either. He didn't hesitate. He just matter-of-factly replied, I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. (laughs) Mm. The gospel readings for the past two weeks have given us glimpses of the interplay, really more of a handing off of authority from John the Baptist to Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw John's baptism of Jesus and from Matthew's perspective, helping frame for us from the start the meaning and necessity of the incarnation, illustrating for us the reality of Jesus becoming fully human while remaining fully God and what it means for us to say that God saved us. By becoming like us in fact he could only save us by becoming like us because of the dual realities found in hebrews 9 22. without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and hebrew 10 verse 4 it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins only to cover them temporarily Last week, the first chapter of the Gospel of John gave us John the Baptist's radical testimony about Jesus' identity as Messiah, prompting Jesus' big question, the question, when two of John the Baptist's disciples turned from John and began following him. Do you remember the question? What do you... It's the question, because we're created in God's image to do what we want, what we love. And so discipleship is actually more about rightly ordering our loves than it is about filling our heads with knowledge, as important as that is. And in a Cartesian brain on the stick, brain on a stick world, we have neglected that to our peril. The text this week, Matthew 4, 12 through 23, I guess, moves the story yet another step forward. After Jesus's baptism in chapter three, verses one through 17, and the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness in chapter four, verse one through 11, which we'll get back to during Lent, Matthew chronicles several events right at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. We see that the launch of Jesus's ministry comes directly on the heels of the interruption or actually coincides with the interruption and what turns out to be the ending of John's public ministry. Jesus's ministry is beginning. John's ministry is ending. In verse 12, Matthew tells us that John's been arrested. Kind of just throws it out there. He doesn't, doesn't even give us a reason. But after John's arrest, Matthew alone, of the four Gospels, records that Jesus moves from his hometown of Nazareth to Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And because Matthew's writing primarily to Jewish readers, he puts emphasis on that detail, telling them that it fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 9, which he quotes. With that move, those in Capernaum, those in the surrounding areas, and as the gospel spreads, even those outsiders walking in darkness are now going to receive the light that Isaiah foresaw. Both Mark and Matthew signal the beginning of what God is doing in and through Jesus by declaring his kingdom message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close by. This is what Jesus, in his own words, has come for, to both announce and usher in God's kingdom. A lot of Christians actually have trouble comprehending the kingdom of heaven references in Matthew, and their misunderstandings can rapidly shape and radically shape the way they respond to the call that's embedded within this and other passages to join Jesus in his mission. Because Jesus references here, Jesus' references here, and throughout Matthew, New Testament scholar NT right. By the way, if you're going to be a New Testament scholar, it's probably good to have the initials N T. <laughs> I, that always cracks me up. New Testament, right. But he says these are not teachings about how to get to heaven. They're not about our escape from this world into another one, but of God's sovereign rule actually coming on earth as it is in heaven. God's sovereign rule. This word's going to be important later. It's absolutely true to say that Jesus came to earth to die, but it's equally true and in harmony with the Gospels to say that Jesus came first to live. He came to announce God's kingdom, to invite sinners into God's kingdom, to proclaim the demands of God's kingdom, and ultimately to bring about God's glorious kingdom. And although some of the early ecumenical Christian creeds, two of the ones that we say, the apostles and the Nicene, jump directly from Jesus' birth to his death, the apostles' creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Fast forward, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man, fast forward, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and so we can, we can forget the importance, even in our creeds, of Jesus' life and his teaching, and the reason for which he lived must never, ever be minimized. And in fact, in in the mostly omitted part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 9, and 10, Jesus points directly not to his death but to his life and teaching when he says, teaching them to observe all that I I have commanded you. He's pointing to his life. I believe Jesus' death takes on its true significance, in fact, only in connection with his life and his teaching. The goodness of the coming of God's kingdom to earth, that is the work he calls his disciples, all of them, to follow him in. Otherwise, we inadvertently limit the scope of the limitless gospel to that simply of what Dallas Willard calls sin management. Where the gospel is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrong being and its effects. Its emphasis is almost entirely on the forgiveness of sin, eternal life in heaven, and assurance of that life here and now. That's all a beautiful part of this. Don't get me wrong. But life, our actual existence, abundance, human flourishing, meaningful vocation, they are not included in what's widely presented today as the heart of the gospel. But that is the message of the kingdom of heaven. The message came; he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Our life, how we live it, really matters so so following matthew 's recounting of the launch of jesus 's public ministry, the proclamation of the kingdom, he goes on to tell us about the calling of four of the disciples in verses eighteen through twenty two there 's a seeming chronological issue if you 're kind of comparing this with john there 's a seeming chronological issue between the Gospels of John and Matthew. That I'm not going to get into here, but be glad to discuss with you at some point if it ends up really troubling you. But John gives no real backstory prior to the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The narrative is reduced to its barest essentials. Jesus summons them with irresistible authority, and they respond with radical obedience. The call, follow me, is given naked and unapologetically as simply being what Jesus requires. And the emphatic Greek adverb, "euthaos" underscores a direct and immediate response by these four. They didn't stop to ponder it. They didn't consult their families. They didn't check their bank accounts. There was zero navel gazing. Jesus called they responded. And Jesus' call to radical obedience has not softened over the ensuing two millennia. The demands have not been reduced. He simply seeks out apprentices who may not have any other qualifications (laughs) save the willingness in love to lay down lesser things and follow him. And here's where my mentor's eight words take on their significance. What is the most important thing in his life? What does he want? A long and good life reduced to eight words, and here they are. Love Jesus passionately. Obey him precisely. Act promptly. I want to say that again. Love Jesus passionately. Obey him precisely. And act promptly. And what we see in Peter, Andrew, James, and John beside the Sea of Galilee is a crystal clear example of the last two parts of the wisdom that my mentor shared that day. Precise obedience and prompt action. And of course, Jesus does tell us in John 14, 15, this is the sign of our loving him. He says just plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments implied precisely and promptly. That's how we love Jesus, by keeping his commandments. It's the word passionately that can be challenging, if not crippling, for us today. This is because culturally, passion no longer packs a punch Unfortunately, though, without it, there's no alliteration in his words, passionately, precisely, promptly, and no alliteration, no sermon, as every Christian knows. (laughs) So here's the challenge. Today, passion means to have really, really, really strong feelings or emotions or beliefs. And you can be passionate about literally anything. I myself have very strong feelings, emotions, and beliefs about ice cream. I, in fact, possess a body perfectly designed for and adept at retaining ice cream. But I digress. So for most, when they hear this, to love Jesus passionately is to have really, really super strong feelings, emotions, and beliefs about him. Yeah, those things are worthy of seeking, of course, and they may come, but that's not what my mentor meant. The English word passion actually comes from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer. We ought to love Jesus as a response to his magnificent kindness and grace, the, the endurance of the cross on our ha- behalf, but to actually love Jesus Passionately means joining him in and through the suffering that he came to endure. And when Jesus calls his would-be disciples to follow him, that's where he puts the emphasis. Remember, the word that I taught you, he tells his disciples in John fifteen twenty, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you. And what did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 16, 24 and 25? Luke 9, 23 and Mark 34, 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let them first deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus puts the emphasis not on health, wealth, and prosperity, not even on happy, but on self-denial and cross-bearing. He did not die to make life easy for us or prosperous, and he will not, as Thomas Fenson said, I don't know, three years ago in a sermon, he will not join us in their pursuit. despite what you might hear from some preachers. Look at Matthew 13, and you'll read that it's only in a life of joyful sacrifice and suffering for Jesus' sake that you discover that that he himself is far more valuable than anything else that we can live for. This is unbelievably difficult for us to wrap our brains around today. And I believe it's because we're trying to do it with half our brains tied behind our backs. Let me explain. One of the reasons I bit so hard on the book, The Other Half of Church, in which we took a deep dive in our fall small groups, and Steve and Rebecca Engstrom are gonna lead us through a series of Joy Together Sundays this winter and spring, is that it really seeks to promote and provide the experiences for, once again, becoming full-brained disciples. I don't know if any of the rest of you have read any of Ian McGilchrist's work, but it fits so well with the work that he did. The master and his emissary, he wrote, the divided brain and the making of the Western world and the matter with things, our brains, our delusions, and the unmaking of the world. In both of these books, he kind of asks the question, what is reality anyway? And can we we reliably know what reality is, and if so, how? He talks a lot about how to be modern, is to seek to control everything, and to strive to know everything in order to control it. And that's what the left brain does he says we know from neuroscience that the functions of the brain uh, of the functions of the brain in abstract reasoning of breaking things down to analyze them happens in the left hemisphere of the brain but the taking in of sense data of intuition and empathy and joy and love happens in the right hemisphere and he says that we in the west since at least the scientific revolution have radically privileged the left hemisphere way of knowing because it's given us so much power within the material world and seemingly allows us to control it but this has come at a huge price he says because it has disintegrated us from reality. We're becoming more and more disconnected from the real world, while at the same time telling ourselves that as science marches on, we're learning more and more about the nature of reality. And this is a fundamental illusion, he says. And we're going to wreck ourselves if we don't turn from it and repudiate it. The trick we're playing on ourselves is that the left hemisphere of our brains discerns the totality of things that we can know and eventually overtakes the right hemisphere, which is the hemisphere of holistic holistic meaning, the hemisphere that actually integrates things. The left hemisphere on its own disintegrates and uh, that's where it derives its power. But it also convinces us that the disintegration is actually an integration. Fascinating. And this mind game that we unwittingly play is a recipe for a kind of madness at scale. McGilchrist, who's a world-renowned psychiatrist, says that we have no records or even descriptions, for example, of schizophrenia, a disintegrating of the brain prior to the 20th century. As far back as ancient Egypt, we have records accurately describing bipolar disorder. But he says schizophrenia is a modern disorder. He says that we are fundamentally fooling ourselves when we tell ourselves that the left brain way of knowing, mostly language and empirical facts, is superior. He insists that we must become more full-brained because the right brain way of knowing, which we largely dismiss today, having more to do with arts and poetry and faith and love and joy, isn't just an add-on that makes life a little more pleasant. It's a critical epistemology. It's a way of knowing all its own. But tell that to most modern people, and they'll look at you like you've got lobsters crawling out your ears, because empiricism has become the god. If you really want to know something, you'd better see what science has to say about it. McGilchrist says this is a fundamental mistake, and I think he's right. Because you might imagine, people that have been entirely raised, educated, and spiritually formed in a left-brain dominant culture would pre-consciously begin with the assumption that everything can ultimately be controlled and should be. Researchers are also now finding that spending huge chunks of our time online is exacerbating this assumption that the world can be controlled. Because it's a world we entirely control, and it's not real. And so when suffering inevitably comes, and it will come to you, precisely the kind of life Jesus says we can expect, we feel out of control, we feel anxious, we feel disconsolate, we feel depressed, we feel paralyzed, and we feel resentful. It has pulled out the thread of God's sovereignty woven in and through our lives. And in the process, it has robbed us of resilience and left a kind of brittleness. At our Bible study on Thursday morning, uh, we read a reading by John of the Cross called The Dark Night of the Soul. It was an excerpt from Dark Night of the Soul, and I told the guys in the group it was triggering because because the last two people that have described their lives as as being in a dark night of the soul have not, as John of the Cross said, come back stronger spiritually, more mature. They have abandoned their faith. They have come to the assumption that there can be no God because I don't feel good. One of the men in the group who told a story about having been recently diagnosed with cancer, and one of his friends, maybe a mentor, said something to him that he said sounded trite when he heard it. And candidly, if somebody had said it to me right off the bat, I probably would have been a little angry. He said, the Lord has been pleased to invite you to the table table of his suffering. You see, Jesus is utterly upfront about the cost of following him. There is a cost to following him even, and I'm sorry to say this, beyond the reality of everyday physical and emotional and relational and mental suffering that every human being will experience and of which we are entirely not in control. Jesus, of course, promises at the end of the Great Commission that he will be with us even to the end of the age, even in and through suffering. And in Deuteronomy 31.8, it, it, it tells us that it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. But really, these are just words. They're just abstractions to us unless and until we experience the light and joy of God's face shining on us relationally, until we know in the right brain, relational way of knowing that he is glad to be with us in our best moments and in our worst moments, in our laughter and in our sorrow, in our ease, and in our suffering. Oh, that we would experience precisely what St. Paul prays for in the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1 16 through 19. I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the first way of knowing. Wisdom, knowledge. Then, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Do you you hear that? Paul is pointing to a way of knowing all its own. That the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of of his power to those who believe. I, I pray that we as a congregation can get to the place where we can see God with the eyes of our hearts, that we can know in a way that we do not know. No. So, love Jesus passionately, act promptly, and obey him precisely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.